You are listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius Podcast. Great to be able to worship with you today. And we are ending this series. We've been three weeks talking about this concept. What does God want? We've worked from Micah chapter 6 verse 8 where the scripture clearly says, um, this is what God requires of us. I've showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. So really simple. What does God want? God is calling us to be salt and light. He's calling us to take a stand, to, to love mercy, to live out the hesed. We talked about the, the hesed, the mercy of God. And then to walk humbly with God. Well, as we're concluding this series, we thought a great way to conclude this series would be to bring in a guest speaker from International Justice Mission. Now, let me wind the clock back a bit. Five years ago, I um, was at a conference and I listened to Gary Haugen, who is the founder of International Justice Mission, and I was so captivated and moved by the talk that he gave about the work that International Justice Mission is doing around the world to address um, specifically areas of evil in relation to human trafficking in relation to sex trafficking and the difference that they were making by really addressing the justice system. So not so much going into rescue, although they do rescue, and you're going to hear some of that this morning, but more than that, they go in and address the systems of injustice within countries to bring about transformation, to be a presence of of light within these um, places of evil around the world today. You know, we're so blessed to live in the Lake Norman community. Amen? And in the comfort of all that we enjoy, oftentimes we are blind to what's happening in the world around us. You're going to hear some numbers today, and you're going to hear some stories that are astounding. It's like, how in the world could that be true? How could that be happening in our world? Injustice playing out. And you're going to hear about how International Justice Mission is is really rallying the church to act justly, for us to take a stand, to allow our voice to be heard, to be that ambassador, to be that, that representative. International Justice Mission, if you're not familiar with the organization, is the largest um, anti-human trafficking organization in the world today. Um, Again, mobilizing the church, the local business community to um, take a stand against injustice. You know, we partner with a lot of organizations that send missionaries that preach the gospel, which we should do and we're going to continue to do. But what I love about International Justice Ministry is they send lawyers Um, They send legal people into these countries to address, um, again, at the root of the problem, the corruption of the system. And so you're going to get to hear about that. And it's all a part of this series. What does God want from us? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. When we have Jeff Hancock with us this morning, Jeff has been a pastor for 20 plus years in Boston I uh, actually grew up in Raleigh, pastored in Boston and Raleigh in the Netherlands, and then he come on board with, IJ, uh, with IJM and is a representative kind of mobilizing the local church. He resides in Atlanta uh, with his wife, his two children, um, but he is a representative coming to just share with us really information of what's happening around the world and how we, as the body of Christ, we have a responsibility We have a responsibility to take a stand, to allow our voice to be heard, as we've talked about throughout this series. So Jeff is going to come and help us bring a conclusion to this series uh, and bring awareness to you as to what's happening around the world. Would you give a a great Grace Covenant welcome to my friend Jeff Hancock. (laughs) 
What if I were to tell you this morning that you are God's plan? I don't by that mean just the thing that he kind of scraped together because everything else fell apart and, well, I've got to do something now, so this is my plan. No, what if you are really God's plan for rescue and for restoration and for the transformation of our world? If any of us woke up today with questions about whether our lives matter, whether we matter, whether we can be a part of a story that is bigger than the one that we've known up until today, let me just put those questions to rest. Because you are God's plan. And there's not another one. I'm really honored to be with you this morning. Uh, As Farrell said, I've been a pastor for a while, and I've had the experience of bringing in guest speakers that I then have to apologize for the next three weeks. Um, So we're going to set the bar there and hope we can clear that, yeah? Um, But I'm also glad to be here with you in this season uh, as you are really wrestling together with really powerful questions of what is it that God wants from us and for us. Right? And so you've been living in these, in this verse, this place of the prophet Micah, uh, where he, he speaks, uh, this, this promise and this proclamation that God has actually told you what he wants from you and for you. To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. And in digging into that question of what God wants, what we're really asking is what does God actually care about? What is it that stirs the heart and the passion of God? What is God passionate about? Now, I'm partly excited to be here with you because that is a dangerous question to ask. Because one, when we ask it, he'll tell us. But two, I think a natural next question is, well, if that's what God is passionate about, what am I passionate about? And for me, that question is actually quite easy to answer. You want to know what I'm passionate about? I'm passionate about me. I love me some me. I'm going to tell you, I'll be honest with you, like when I wake up in the morning, I don't have to have like a sticky note on my mirror saying, Jeff, remember to think of yourself today. It just comes naturally. It's like a gift, right? And the thing is, is that often... The God that I have been presented through my life, and I think the God of popular religion, and the God that fills the pages of many of the best-selling books in our Christian bookstores today, reveal a God that has the same preoccupation that I do. Me. God is really just interested just in me, in my private life, in my private morality, in my private religion. Right? And I actually think that it's very easy for us to find that God and retreat to this place where it's just me and my buddy Jesus against the world, right? I remember several years ago seeing an advertisement for a passion play. You know, the passion play where they they kind of go through the life of Jesus and they wind up with the crucifixion. And what struck me about this one was that the big selling point for this passion play above others is it was this. Come and see the passion of the Christ from the comfort of your own car. Ah, finally, I thought, right? 
It's easy to stay in that place. And sometimes, sometimes, maybe this notion of the love of God pushes me past just myself. And so I begin to think, maybe God is passionate about more than just me. Maybe he's even passionate about people who are like me, and look like me, and think like me, and worship with me. But... When we take an honest look in the Bible, as you have been, when we take even just the most cursory glance at this God of the Bible, we see a God that is passionate about far more than just me and mine. He is passionate about the world, right? For God so loved the world. That means not just me, but Everyone. It means that the relentless and reckless love of this God is being poured out on behalf of every person. Every person's story starts at the place where they are the beloved of God, crafted in the image of God. When we look in the Bible, we see a God who is interested in something larger than just my private religion and is actually interested in this unflinching look at the reality of our world. And we see a God with a constant motion of love into the places of brokenness, of darkness, of vulnerability in our world. We see this throughout Scripture. We see it certainly in the life of Jesus, don't we? There's this extraordinary moment at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 4, it's really the moment when he is entering into the public sphere of his ministry. And so he takes this moment to bring a revelation. It is the self-revelation, actually, of God, where he's revealing the mission of God through him. So what Jesus is to be doing on this earth, right? And so he stands up and he reads from this scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, I've come to bring good news for the poor. And I've come to bring freedom for the prisoner and, and, and the release for those who are oppressed. Now, most of the time when I've heard this preached and when I've preached it myself, it has been metaphor. A beautiful metaphor, right? About how God is interested in freeing and bringing good news to the poor in spirit. And he's really interested in bringing uh, release from the prison of my sin and shame. And he's breaking the chains of the oppression of my addictions and habits. Now, let me take a second and say, all of those things are true. And that's good news, isn't it? But if we as the church stop there, then I think we fail to understand just how good this news really is. Jesus promises here, and what I think is clear here, is that Jesus is not laying out the formation of a new religion. He is laying the foundations of a new world. A world of God's vision that Jesus is starting and even now bringing to fruition. And He calls those who would walk after Him to enter into and to live towards this vision of this new world. Now, 
I think that that actually raises questions in and of itself. If this is the passion of God, if this is the place where God would reside in the places of brokenness and darkness, I think we ask ourselves rightly, well, how do we reconcile that then? If that's where Jesus is, how do we reconcile God's passion for this and yet the reality of a broken world? How do we reconcile his desire with the reality of people suffering from famine and, and the lack of clean water and the lack of a doctor? These very basic things. Well, It turns out, actually, that God not only cares about those things, but he has a plan to bring remedy to them. You want to know what the plan is? It's you. And it's me. We are God's plan, and there's not another one. God's call to follow him is always bigger than we would at first imagine. Because his invitation is never simply to be a recipient of his love, but to be a participant in that love. And so he tells us, feed the hungry. Give water to those who are thirsty. In Matthew chapter 5, he says it this way. He says, you are the light of the world. So, let your light so shine that people actually see your good works, and and from that, that they give glory to their Father in heaven. In 2 Corinthians, it goes almost further in a way, where it says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. It's as if God is making his appeal to the world through our lives. And so for thousands of years, the church has followed this vision of discipleship by going into the places of need and, and trying to live towards this out of this vision of a better world. And, and so bringing remedy to kinds of suffering where there's a lack of the good news of God's love, we bring it. Where there's a lack of food or water, then we feed and give to the thirsty, right? But where I want to take it maybe one more step... And what drives our work at International Justice Mission is another kind of suffering in our world. It's a suffering that does not come from the lack of good news. It's not from, the, from deprivation of certain basic needs, though those things might be happening as well. But it's actually this sort of underlying form of suffering that sometimes makes remedying those other things actually impossible. But this kind of suffering is is directly from the intentional abuse and oppression of other people. These people in this kind of suffering are the victims of injustice in our world. IJM works around the world to enter into these places of, of, of injustice and try and live out the words of Jesus. I think that one of the challenges for us, and particularly one of the challenges for us as a 21st century North American church, in living out this call to be agents of justice in our world, is that, well, what does that word even mean? What is justice? What is injustice? See, I think those words have sort of been co-opted from us. They've been taken from the church, and they've been turned into political grenades that you lob at whoever the enemy is. 
the enemy being anyone who disagrees with you, right? And so it's very easy in our culture, I think, to think everybody's a victim of injustice and nobody's a victim of injustice, and I'm a victim of it constantly. My kids would tell you that they are very passionate about issues of justice and injustice. Now, what they mean is, why does she get to stay up later than I do? How come he gets more ice cream than I do? They're interested in issues of fairness, and as crucial as those might seem, let me just be very clear that when the Bible speaks of injustice, it's not really talking about that. In the Bible, injustice is a very specific kind of sin. Injustice is about the abuse of power. It is the abuse of power to take from someone else the good things that God intends for them. So that when I as an individual, when we as a group, when systems abuse power to take from other people the good things, life and liberty and dignity and the fruits of their love and labor, when that power is abused to take those things from others, this is the sin of injustice. We see the reality of this sin from cover to cover in Scripture. There is not a prophet in the Old Testament that doesn't cry out against this kind of injustice. In the story of David, right, where one of the most famous stories of the Old Testament, we see David really commit kind of a whole laundry list of sins, right? And we could name a whole bunch of things. But when God confronts David through the prophet Nathan, you know what he calls him out on? His abuse of power. In fact, In the Old Testament, there is no sin called out more often than injustice except for the sin of idolatry. Now, this kind of injustice, perhaps for some of us, we have experienced that. Some of us in this room have. For others, it's just not the everyday reality we experience. And that's fine, but... I want to assure you of this reality, that it is the everyday reality of many, many people in our world. It is the everyday reality of four billion of our brothers and sisters who live in the world outside of the protection of an effective justice system. It is the everyday reality of women and girls around our world where gender-based violence, that is, violence that's committed against women and girls because they are women and girls, accounts for more death and injury than motor accidents, cancer, malaria, and war combined. It is the everyday reality of an estimated 40 million people created in the image of God who exist now as victims of the ancient human injustice of slavery. 40 million people created in love and for love in the image of God are enslaved today. Now, that number is staggering. It's difficult to wrap our brains. I mean, how is that possible? I thought slavery was something in our history books. I can assure you it is not. 
It is a reality. And in our work around the world, much of the work that we do is actually leaning into this particular kind of injustice, of not only working to rescue victims of slavery, but to bring an end to this system of bloodshed and evil. One of the nations where we work is the nation of Ghana. In Ghana, we work on this uh, lake, Lake Volta, that exists in the middle of the country and kind of stretches across the length of most of the country. And there's tens of thousands of young boys uh, in the fishing industry on this lake. And just as a, a way of getting a glimpse into what we do there, I want you to watch this with me. This reality for tens of thousands of little boys as young as four and five um, is and was the waking reality of Foley. Foley was one of the little boys that you heard from there and heard some of his words. And Foley was a kid who had already encountered just the difficulty of being human. And he had lost both of his parents and was being raised by his grandparents. And Foley would tell us later the stories of just the joy that came from his relationship to his grandfather and how he loved to go and and learn life with him just by being beside him and watching him and, and imitating that life. 
And Foley and his grandfather would often go to the marketplace, and one day they did so as usual, and a car struck Foley's grandfather. And it injured him to the extent that it wasn't really clear whether his grandfather was going to be able to recover. But what was very clear was that this family that was already living on the the, the edge of crushing poverty uh, wasn't able to to sustain life together with all of these mounting medical bills. And so one of Foley's relatives who lived on the lakeshore came to the family, the grandparents, and said, listen, I'll take Foley. I'll I'll take him with me, we can uh, make sure he goes to school, and I'll apprentice him to a skill, and and I'll take this burden off of your plate. We see this pattern again and again of, of sometimes relatives, sometimes actual slave recruiters who travel from lakeshore communities into vulnerable communities around Ghana, and who give this sort of a spiel where families, through either desperation or ignorance sometimes give over their children in hope that this story they're being provided will be the reality. What Foley discovered on his first day on the lake is what tens of thousands of boys experienced, that the life that they had been promised, the life that was described, was not actually going to be the reality. So Foley, like these other boys, uh, is forced to work uh, 14, 16 hour a day, uh, back-breaking labor. I had the chance to visit our office in Ghana and go out on the lake and see some of these young boys working. And one of the things I was struck by was the roughness of their hands from the constant handling of ropes and nets. The muscles that didn't belong on a little boy's body from just grueling labor and lack of nutrition. Foley, like others, would sometimes be so exhausted or sick, they would ask not to work, and uh, physical violence was a a regular reality for them. And one of the things Foley talked about um, that was a common theme was his fear of the water itself. The Lake Volta is actually just this enormous flooded forest. And so the the lake, which is incredibly deep, has these trees just lining the, the depths of the lake. And these nets, which are these finely woven nets, get tangled constantly on these trees. And one of the reasons that the the boatmasters use these little boys is that their hands are delicate and small enough to, to untangle these nets. But so many of the boys, like Foley, they didn't know how to swim when they were first taken to the lake. And what they knew was that if you come up without the net, you risk beatings. And so Foley and virtually every boy that we've met has either witnessed themselves or known personally a a boy who has drowned. And so Foley would tell us later of this prayer that he would pray every day. It was really a prayer about God placing the nets in the right place. And if you read just that last paragraph, he prays, Oh, Father, Lord, as we're about to set this net, I pray that you would protect and put your hands around it that it wasn't, wouldn't go that deep, it wouldn't get stuck, and they wouldn't ask me to go and untangle it. What strikes me about that prayer and the reality of Foley's life is that the hope of it, if you can call it that, is really just survival. So any hope, any prayer, any dream that Foley has is really about the survival of this next dangerous moment. 
And we find that reality true not only of Foley and the boys on the lake, but all of the clients that we work with around the world, that there really is no hope beyond immediate survival because there is no vision of the possibility of another world. And without that vision of another world, without that vision of something greater and more and better, then there's no place for hope. And can I say this? That the reality of violent injustice not only creates that lack of vision and hope for the victims of that violence, I would say that for the rest of the world, it has the same effect. That the, the reality of violent injustice around our world and the lack of vision for a better world creates that same kind of fearful response in the rest of us. Where it's a perfectly natural thing, frankly, to retreat back into the corner of our safety and see if I can provide for me and mine. And can I even go one step further to say that I think that's not only true of the world around us, I think sometimes it is true of us as the church. That we too can be captured by this notion that nothing's going to change anyways. And so again, we retreat within our walls and are frankly in some ways uh, afraid or despondent because we've lacked this vision of God's vision for a world, of this better world. But again, if we look at the Bible, we are not actually left without witness of something different. We're not left without a witness to what God thinks of these things. In Psalm 10, the psalmist is actually praising God because of how God views these things. He says, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of this earth would terrify no more. We see again and again God's heart for the oppressed, for injustice, and we see this too. We see this desire of God for his people to be a people of justice. He has told you, people, what he wants for and from you, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Isaiah begins, really, with this call to God's people to learn to do justice. And it really moves through that theme throughout the whole book. And when, when we do, it says, you will become the restorers of broken streets, the repairers of broken walls. We are God's plan to meet injustice, and there is not another one. It is the clear and consistent witness of Scripture that the church of Jesus Christ is to enter into the situations and the systems of the darkness of violent injustice and bring remedy to them by putting the words of Jesus into action. Listen, sometimes it is confusing to know what it means to live in the direction of the kingdom of God. What, what does that look like? The, sometimes choices are complicated, but let me tell you what isn't. I know this, that in the kingdom of God, little boys aren't enslaved, so I can live in that direction. And let me be really honest here. 
when we don't, when the people of God do not take up this prophetic role within our world to use our voices and our resources and our actions to cry out against injustice and to proactively work for justice, when we don't do that, the stakes are real. Because the world is left without vision and slaves stay slaves. But I also want you to hear this clearly, that really my longing for us as the church to recover this role of being the people of justice is not only because of what happens when we don't, it's because of what can happen when we do. The world can change. But hold on a second. I mean, maybe it makes sense in a sense to step back to that place of of fearfulness because when I say that we are the plan for addressing injustice, most of us did not jump up and say, Hallelujah. When I hear that I am God's plan to address injustice, frankly, my first response is, you couldn't come up with a better one? Because I feel like I could come up with three or four better ideas just off the top of my head. And the temptation for us is to so be so rooted to our chairs with despair or with a feeling that nothing's going to change that we actually end up not doing anything It reminds me of how often the disciples felt this same kind of thing. When they would walk beside Jesus into places unknown and uncharted, and he would just be Jesus in those places, and they were left wondering, oh my goodness, what are we supposed to do here? There's that wonderful story, this moment where Jesus is out on the plane and he's preaching to thousands of people, right? And he preaches and then he stops, and the disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, first of all, Great job out there. You're doing good, right? Just wanted to let you know that all of these people, they didn't bring food. They're starving right now. They are so hungry. So why don't you send them away? They get fed, and then they'll come back. Jesus looks at him, and he says, that is a great idea. I have another idea, and I'm just spitballing here, but how about this? How about you feed them? Now, one of the things I'm grateful for is that Jesus was surrounded by people who loved him so much that they would tell him when he was wrong, right? And so the disciples look at him and they say, oh, Jesus, you sweet, simple man. See, here's the thing. There's 5,000 people out there, and that would take an entire year's wages to feed them. And, well, we just don't have that much. So back to you, Jesus. Now, I find it interesting that it's not actually unclear what Jesus told them to do, is it? He said, feed them. We find ourselves in the same place. It's not actually unclear what God tells his people to do in regards to injustice. But Jesus turns to the disciples and he really asks two questions. The first is, well, what do you have? And they don't have nothing, right? And so they have to tell him, they've got this kid. You remember this kid? He brought a sack lunch. And so they're like, well, there's this kid, and he's got like two fish and five loaves. I mean, we've got that. That's our corporate resources meant to meet this need. 
And so Jesus asks his second question. Will you give it to me? What do you have? And will you give it to me? And in that moment, Jesus takes responsibility for the miracle. Jesus takes responsibility for the result. Jesus takes responsibility for the transformation. What he gives is an invitation to join him in that. And people, let me tell you that when the church of Jesus Christ offers whatever it is that we have to God, the world changes I can tell you today that Foley is no longer a slave on Lake Volta because the people of God offered to God what they had. Foley's grandfather didn't die. He recovered. And he wasn't going to give up on his grandson. And so he went repeatedly to the lake shore where he was threatened and rebuffed. He was able to to partner with IJM, and IJM's investigators not only learned of his case, but began to scout and identify where Foley and other boys were being held. And we, along with our partners on the Ghanaian police force, were able to go out on the lake to bring Foley and other boys out of bondage and to bring arrest to the perpetrators of that violence against those boys. After a season of aftercare, Foley was restored to his grandfather's care. And there was this joyous reunion. And I'll tell you this, that if today, if Foley were here, he would tell you that he is free not because of a metaphor. He is freed because the people of God, the friends of Jesus, made it possible for IJM to go out on a lake and to bring him out. There are 47,000 other people around the world that would tell you today that they are freed not because of a metaphor, but because the friends of Jesus entered into their place of darkness and brought them out. We are watching transformation occur in the lives of individuals and groups, but even bigger than that, we are watching the balance of power shift in whole nations. In our work in Ghana, after our very first rescue operation, we were able to help facilitate the arrest of one of the boatmasters. Well, it turned out that he had a friend who was on the the sort of equivalent of the city council, who knew someone at the state level, who knew someone who was on the president's council, and pretty soon the Ghanaian government had revoked our ability to work within Ghana. After months of working and lobbying and praying and inviting our partners to pray with us, there was an election. And in that election, every single official from local to national levels who had stood in the way of justice for these boys on Lake Volta was swept out of power. Amen. We now stand in a place in Ghana where our most vocal advocate in the nation is the vice president and his wife. (laughs) The vice president's wife actually travels all around Ghana advocating for our work, uh, advocating for IJM, and rallying other NGOs and government uh, um, forces to, to rally together in a coalition to bring an end once and for all to child slavery in Ghana. God changes the world when we partner with Him. And the world needs it. And God wants it for the world, but He also wants it for His church. 
You ever wonder why Jesus did that miracle the way he did? I mean, there's thousands of starving people. Okay, poof, steak dinners for everybody. It's Jesus. He can do what he wants, right? Why did he do it the way he did? I will remain forever convinced that he did it so that one little boy could have an extraordinary day. Can you imagine what that kid said when he got home? Mom, you're never going to believe what Jesus did with my lunch. It makes me ask what he could do with ours. We don't ever have to be afraid. When Jesus describes his church, he describes a church that doesn't need to fear. Why? Because they are going to be so strong that the gates of hell itself will not prevail against them. Now again, so much of my life I've understood that in this sort of defensive way. That somehow we as the church will gather inside our castle walls and will cling to each other and God enough so that the big scary world, we will somehow survive it by the skin of our teeth. Let me tell you something. An army doesn't encounter the gates of the enemy when it's on defense. An army encounters the gates of the enemy when it is attacking the enemy. Jesus is not describing here a church that can somehow survive the onslaught of a scary world. He is describing evil and darkness that can never withstand the onslaught of a loving church. We don't have to be afraid. Never for an instant believe the lie that your lives don't matter. Never for an instant believe that the decisions people like us make in rooms like this, in moments like this, don't have an impact on the world. Because I can tell you firsthand, they do. We are the people of God. And we are changing the world. And that is really good news. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that your heart burns for the oppressed. That you see these systems and situations of injustice and far from being afraid, you move towards them with love, with compassion, with arms of rescue and of justice. And we thank you that you call us to be the vehicle through which you provide this biblical justice in our world. And so, Father, we pray that as a people who have been set free, that we would go forth from this place setting others free. We pray that as a people beloved, we would go forth loving the vulnerable. We pray that as those who have had our bondage and our our chains broken, we pray that we would be those who break the chains of others. So, Father, we give you ourselves and we pray these things trusting in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.